Genesis 17. While you open there, I'm going to turn to Jeremiah 31. If you're nimble and quick, you can turn there as well. Genesis 17 and Jeremiah 31. As we get into the word this morning, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. So this is for everyone. And declare in the coastlands or in the islands afar off. So that even means us. And say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Grace that brought us to the fold of God, that same grace will restore Israel. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. And they will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. And they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life will be like a watered garden and they will never languish again. Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I will fill, fill the soul of the priest with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. What an amazing promise, a guarantee that for all Israel has suffered across history, their mourning will be turned into dancing. Joy and laughter. Now, for all that the Jewish people have gone through in the history of the world, for all the sorrow that they've known, I don't know very many other people who are more expert at celebration. If you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, especially a Jewish wedding held in the streets of Jerusalem, you know these people know how to party. Bar mitzvahs, feasts and festivals. They even have a word for it. It's the yamim tovim. Yamim tovim in the Hebrew means good days. And God has filled the Hebrew calendar with yamim tovim. We would say holidays, holy days. They say good days because they're days of rejoicing. They're days of laughter. And God is the one who set them up. God's the one who wrote them in. I want you to keep these days. Rejoice in these days. Fellowship with family, come before the Lord. No laughter and joy. It's all God's intention. Why? Because God knows, Proverbs 17, 22, that a joyful heart is good medicine. If you're feeling a little sick, rejoice. Having some hard times, laugh. Praise the Lord. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. And you know how that feels. It's dark, it's dismal, maybe it's raining again. You're stuck at home. Things aren't going well at work anyway, and you just feel brittle. Hey, a joyful heart is good medicine. This has been scientifically proven. Dr. William Fry, who is a pioneer in laughter research, which I didn't know was such a thing, but I'm about to get into it. Laughter research. He said it took 10 minutes on a rowing machine for his heart rate to reach the same level caused by one minute of hearty laughter. Joy. 
A joyful heart is good medicine. Research tells us that laughter increases blood flow. Cool. It boosts immune, immune response. It lowers blood sugar levels. And laughter induces relaxation and sound sleep. I tell Cheryl this every night. If we could just watch something funny for 20 minutes, we'll sleep better. If we can laugh together, tell a joke. She's like, stop with the puns. I'm like, I'm trying to help you relax. <laughs> there are all kinds of laughter, aren't there? There's, there's silly, foolish laughter. There's joyful, celebratory, where you're with friends and it's all good and you can't help but just smile and laugh. There's nervous laughter, kind of like what I hear around here a lot. There's um, surprised laughter, that laughter of shock where you just, you know, you walk into a surprise party and, and you just start to laugh because you were not expecting. There's spiteful laughter, skeptical, cynical, what we would call incredulous laughter. Well, today we come to a story of laughter. It's another first in the book of Genesis. The first time we hear the word laughter used is Genesis chapter 17. But I want you to understand as we get into this, this is a nuanced laughter. It's not as obvious as it may seem. It's gonna take some serious unpacking to understand and to comprehend what is taking place, why this laughter is happening, what man's experience is with it, and what God's intention is for it. You see, it's the story of Abraham. Abraham, who up until this point, <clears throat> we've only known him as Abram. In chapter 17, he is both Abram and then he becomes Abraham. We'll talk about that in a moment. This is where the change happens. And in this chapter, Abraham falls on his face in uncontrollable laughter. When was the last time you laughed that hard? That you fell on your face, you fell out of the chair, you just rolled around on the ground. Most of us as an adult do not laugh like that. That's for the children. We'll smile, perhaps give a little golf clap after a good praise song. I don't know when the last time was that I ever saw people at the bridge rolling in the aisles in joyful rejoicing in the name of the Lord. If you do it next Sunday, don't blame me. But Abraham, he, he just, it literally, it's laughter that comes bursting out. He can't stop himself. He is on his face. But, but before this happens, we got to draw back and see something else. There's another time in chapter 17 where Abraham falls on his face. A time actually where he is still Abram, and it's not an uncontrollable laughter, it's an irrepressible worship. Look at verse one of chapter 17. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face. And God talked with him. If you look down in verse 17, it says, then Abram, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. So I'm thinking by the end of that day, he had a sore face. But Father, as we open these words and seek to understand what's happening here at a very human level, I pray for wisdom, wisdom that's from above. I pray for clarity. I pray, Father, that not only will we understand these things, but we can apply these things in our own lives as good medicine for the heart. And Holy Spirit, there are things you can do here this morning that I can't even come close to doing. 
I ask you, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us, awaken our souls, and give us your truth that changes our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse one of chapter 17 again says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. 99 years old. James chapter two, verse 23 says, Abraham was called the friend of God. But please understand that doesn't mean that he heard from God every day. In fact, this friendship is interesting. It's not like they hung out at a coffee shop. Not like they texted often or joked around or got together for game night. In fact, according to the biblical record, it had been well over a decade since the last time Abram had even heard from God. 13 years to be precise. If you look at the end of chapter 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appears to him. 13 years have now gone by. How long has it been since the last time you heard from God? Oh, I know some of you are saying, I've never heard from God. He's never spoken to me. You know what? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have heard from God. He has spoken to you. Because the Bible tells us that you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You hear and you have faith. You hear and you believe. And hearing is not limited to the auditory sense. It's not limited to my ears. I can hear through understanding, through comprehension. Ask someone who's deaf, do they not understand? Oh, they don't have the auditory hearing, but they hear very well. And in the same way, you can hear from the Lord. Now, I personally believe that we can and do hear audibly. Abraham clearly does. People throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation clearly hear from the Lord. And there's nothing in the Bible that says that that stops. In fact, what Jesus says is my sheep know my voice. They hear me. So I'm absolutely convinced we hear God. And, and again, there are those who say, but, but, but I, I haven't heard audibly. And, and if I have, it, it's been so long. To you, I say, patience, patience. Do you realize the first time in Abram's life that he ever heard from God? He was at least 50 years old. So everyone under 50, give it time. I can tell you this, I hear a lot better now than when I was young because when I was young, and this is just me, my head was full of my own voice. I hear him better now that I hear myself less. Now Abram is 99 and he's hearing from God. And again, there's been this span of time, 13 years, which makes me wonder how many times in his life did Abe actually hear from God? This is number six. Out of eight times listed in the Bible, eight total revelations in Abram's entire life, and that includes Melchizedek, if you remember that story in Genesis 15, eight times, how long did Abraham live? 175 years. Eight times in 175 years, and if you just do the math, that means about once every 21 to 22 years. We forget that the Bible accounts are compressed. That the histories of people in scriptures, we, we see entire lifetimes, sometimes on a single page. 
or maybe across two or three chapters, we get a whole life and we, we start to think, well, they heard from God all the time. They were talking to God every day. Not so. There are some who only heard from God once their entire life, audibly, prophets who heard one thing from the Lord and then spoke it. So don't be surprised if it's not a constant thing. Actually, faith is often born in the silence. It comes from hearing, but then it comes also by, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. It comes from walking before God, being with him, being in his presence. If you're having hearing trouble this morning, here's what you do. Two quick prescriptions, and it's right at the beginning of the chapter. The Lord says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. If you do that, you will hear from God. Simple, a two-point sermon, and we're done. Or we would be if it was anyone else. <laughs> walk before me and be blameless. Listen to that, think about that. Okay, that sounds nice, but walk before me. What does that mean? Before me in the Hebrew, the word is lefanah, and it literally translates, walk in my presence. Walk in my presence. Let me make that easier. To walk in the presence of God is simply to walk aware that he is here. It's to walk with awareness. It's to recognize, just as he said he would be, that Jesus said, I am with you always. That's unequivocal. I am with you always, except for those times when I'm not. You know, if I'm busy working over in Zambia or something, then maybe those times I won't be with you. But most of the time, I'll try to be there, you know, unless things get kind of dicey in, 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 you know, Eastern Europe. Then I mean, I'll, I'll try to be, I'll do my best. I am with you always, Jesus said, always. Which means there's never a time that he's not, although there are many times where I don't recognize that he is. That's my problem. To walk in awareness, to be aware of the presence of God. He's present. Are you aware of it? Do you know that he is? Jesus said in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He says over and over the same thing. Hebrews chapter 13, verse five. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So really the question is, can you trust him for that? To walk before God. I like how the Proverbs say it, Proverbs 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's so simple. In all your ways, walking before him means that you acknowledge him, acknowledge his presence and he will keep eyes on your path. You keep your eyes on him. You don't worry about the path, he's got that. He's watching that. Any of you parents have ever been hiking with young children? You've got your eyes on what's ahead. Well, they're just all over the place doing this. But every now and then, the son, the daughter, the little child will look back to see that you're there. Awareness of your presence. That's what it means. Walk aware of the presence of God because he is with you. Wake in the morning and say, God, would you tap my shoulder through the day? Would you remind me? Give me moments today where I can once again come into awareness of your presence. That's walking before God. But the second one is tougher for me. Be blameless. Boy, blameless? The word is 
tamim, and it, it, it means spotless. In fact, the same word is used of the sacrificial lamb. You must be like that, spotless, without blemish, perfect. But the word also means complete. Walk before me and be complete. Walk before me and be whole. Walk before me and have integrity. Here's how it works. To be blameless, you have to walk before him. In fact, you don't have one without the other. I call it presence perfect. If you are in the presence of God, he will make you perfect. But you can't have one without the other. To walk before God and to be blameless are inseparable. Are you with me on this? That if you are aware of his presence, he is making you blameless. But separate it out. I'm gonna be blameless, you won't be. Well, I'm gonna walk in his presence and I'm gonna be, you know, full of blame. You can't be. You cannot walk in the presence of God without him sanctifying and perfecting and making you blameless. That's how it works. It's a beautiful coexistence of blamelessness and walking as Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is with you to the very end of the age? And do you believe that he perfects you? That is walking before him and being blameless. It's the work that he does. Philippians 2.13, it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when the Lord appears before Abram and says, walk before me and be blameless, he's calling him back into awareness. He's saying, in essence, Abram, don't stress over perfection, just stay in my presence. And I would say the same to you as he said to me, don't stress over perfection. You be in my presence, I'll perfect you. I'll make you righteous. He has the power to do what we don't. It's presence perfect. With anyone else, it wouldn't work. You can be in my presence and I will not perfect you. In fact, there are times where being in my presence could drag you down. But to be in the presence of the Lord, to be aware that he is here, he is working, he is moving, he is in my life, that has a perfecting effect on me. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So walk before him and be blameless. You wanna hear better? You wanna have an audience with God? You have it. Walk before him and be blameless. Why? Because, because as he says, I am God Almighty. And we have to pause for a moment because last week he was called by a different name. Remember Hagar called him Elroy, the God who sees and I love that throughout the scriptures, especially early on, there are all these different names that are given for God so that the people of God could begin to understand his character, to know who he is. So now we have another name to add to the growing list of names, El Elyon. We have uh, El Roy, and now we have El Shaddai. God Almighty, El Shaddai. He was El Shaddai long before Amy Grant sang the song. El Shaddai. God Almighty, a name that expresses his very nature. Do you realize that it wasn't until Moses that people started to call him Yahweh? That up until that point, that's not how he expressed himself? He didn't share that name? 
Oh, I know we see the name. We see Yahweh. We see Lord throughout the Hebrew scriptures, throughout Genesis, all the way up to Exodus. Before we get to Moses, we see the name. Yeah, that's because Moses is writing Genesis. He's writing of the one he knows. So we see Lord applied throughout the book. And yet God says, Exodus chapter six, verse two, he said to Moses, I am Yahweh. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Well, that's interesting. He, he, he didn't share his name until then? No, because all the other names expressed his nature and helped humanity to understand who he was, who he is. And so now, here with Abraham, he declares himself El Shaddai. He's called El Shaddai 48 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Another 31 times in the book of Job, he's simply called Shaddai. That's significant. It makes me wonder, okay, if he's called El Shaddai and names express the nature, what does it mean? You might say, well, Rick, it says God Almighty. Okay, let's understand the word a little bit. Because there are those who listen to who look at El Shaddai and they will suggest that it's actually the softer side of God. Come see the softer side of God a feminine side, a more mothering, nurturing view of God. Now, don't get me wrong, God is nurturing. Isaiah 49, 15 says, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Jesus even compares himself in Matthew 23, 37, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. So we do have that, that compassionate, tender, soft, gentle, nurturing aspect to who God is. And there are those who say, well, that's El Shaddai. They say it comes from the Hebrew word shad, shad, which comes from the Akkadian word shadu, which means breast or chest. And they say, well, that's, that's the feminine side of God. It's the nurturing, caring, feeding, you know, el shad. The problem is shaddai doesn't come from shad. That's not the root word of shaddai in the Hebrew. And it's, it's how language works. But the, the, the root word from Shaddai is a different word. Now, there are two possibilities here. One is what Kidner says, that a traditional analysis of the name is God, El, who, Shah, is sufficient, Dai. El, Shah, Dai, God is sufficient. And Adam Clark agrees with that. El Shaddai, I am God all sufficient, who pours out blessings and gives them richly, abundantly, and continually. So that's possible if you break it down by syllable, but we know a more awe-inspiring meaning to El Shaddai. Mark this, note this, that the root word of Shaddai is not Shad, it is not Shadu, it's Shaddad. S-H-A-D-A-D, that's the root of Shaddai, and it means a devastating display of power. Shaddad, even a destructive power. In fact, the same word, the root word Shaddad is used in Hosea chapter 10, verse two. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Wait a minute, are we saying that he says, I am God the destroyer? No. Destroy is the root word. 
Shaddai. But Shaddai is a more powerful, more potent meaning to it. And a little more help for us in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. You Bible students remember, it's the Septuagint. We reference it a lot. 280 or so years before Jesus, Jewish scholars got together and they retranslated the Hebrew Bible for the first time into the Greek. And they were very careful because that's what Hebrew scholars do. Careful to come up with the best most specific translation they could in the Greek language from the original Hebrew. And you know what they did with El Shaddai? They changed it in the Greek to Pantocrator. Pantocrator. Now I know you're going, oh, <laughs> great. Now I get it. <laughs> I am the Pantocrator is what the Greek translation says. Do you recall hearing that before? If you went through our Revelation study, you did because it's the same word that Jesus used to describe himself. Revelation chapter one, verse eight, I am the alpha and the omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty, the Pantocrator. And that's the word that the Hebrew scholars used when translating El Shaddai, they translated it Pantocrator, speaking of his awesome power and potency and splendor and glory. He is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. And it fits the whole context because after him saying that and calling on Abram to walk blameless, to walk before him and be blameless, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. He says, I will 12 times in the chapter. Seven times right here in the restatement of the covenant. I will do this because I am El Shaddai. And verse three again tells us Abram fell on his face. That is a posture of trembling worship. I am El Shaddai and down he goes. He didn't fall face first before the sweet nurture of a nursing mama. He falls down before the all-sufficient power and potency of God Almighty who perfects those who walk in his presence. Abram gets a sense of who's he, who he's talking to. El Shaddai, God Almighty. And that's the name. And that tells us of the power of God. But why does he show up now? Why now? I already pointed out to you between chapters 16 and 17, it's been 13 years of silence. And all of a sudden, God shows up. He does so, and this is so vitally important. Genesis 17 is not a new covenant. He's gonna talk about the covenant of circumcision. Jake mentioned that a few weeks ago. We're gonna look at that in depth on Wednesday night. It's not a new covenant. This is a restatement of the covenant that he has already given to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15. And now in Genesis 17, he comes back to it yet again after 13 years of quiet to both confirm the covenant and, and to clarify it. Because you see, Abram and Sarah are a little off course. They're a little confused. They're missing it. They need clarification. Why? Because for 13 years, there's been confusion in Abram's tent. Think about it. He now has two wives, Sarai and Hagar. What does the Bible tell us about their relationship? Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> These two do not get along. There is spite, there's animosity, 
There is problems. If you remember in Genesis 16, Sarai kicked Hagar out of the tent. Hagar ends up coming back, having to submit. But I guarantee you it's not been 13 years of joy. This is why, gentlemen, polygamy has always been a bad idea. I can barely keep up with one wife. Can you imagine two? Guys, can I hear an amen? One is enough. I do my best. But he's got these two women and these two women in contention, one who's born him a son, Ishmael. Oh, yeah, there's another issue in the tent. Ishmael, he's now 13. He's in middle school. He's prophetically called a wild donkey of a man. So what kind of teenager would that make him? I mean, just think about that. And so he's got Ishmael, he's got this problem child, 13 years of this, of these animals, and, and, and God hasn't said a word. Interesting. Sarai was 77 years old, and Abram was 85, and she realized, wow, he's getting old. If he's going to have an heir from his own body, we got to get cooking. So Sarai gives Abram Hagar, who gives Abram Ishmael, now Ishmael is 13 years old, and as far as Abram and Sarai knew, the covenant was working. Promise fulfilled. We have an heir. His name is Ishmael. And this was the plan of God all along. God has finally wisened up and joined us in our plan. And God said nothing. He just let it roll. 13 years. It's interesting that it changes here because note back in chapter 15, verse 18, it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and the word made is cut. It's karat berit. He cut covenant with Abram. But here it says in verse two, I will establish my covenant between me and you. It's a different word. It's etna. And etna means I will transfer now. I will deliver my covenant. So after all this time, God is now coming and delivering, making transference of the covenant to Abram through Sarai and to their offspring. It's so important that at this point, El Shaddai changes their names. This often happens in, in Jewish thinking. In fact, if you were to convert to Judaism, you would have to change your name. That's a thing. When the Jewish people began to flow back into the land in the late 19th century and on into the 20th century, they all were changing their names as they came back into the promised land to good Hebrew names. David Grun changed his name to David Ben-Gurion, first prime minister of Israel. And so the name change signifies something big is taking place. Note this in verse 5. God says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Avram in the Hebrew means exalted father. We might say big daddy. That was Avram's original name, big daddy, which was ironic because until he was 86 years old, he was not a daddy at all. He had never had a son. Here comes Abram the childless. And then in 86, well, there's big daddy who had a child with his Egyptian maidservant, and now God says, uh-uh, that's not the plan. Abram, you are Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. And you remember the original covenant promise, Genesis 12, 2. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. 
That was way back when Abram was roughly 50 years old, and now he's 99, and God's finally getting to it. Why don't we learn that? Why is it so hard for us human beings to comprehend that God works on his own timetable, not ours? In fact, if I were going to give this chapter a name, I would call it God Doesn't Need Us. He loves us, but he doesn't need us. He will do it in his time, in his way. And here we are, Abram, 99 years old, and God's now starting to do things. And he also, by the way, changes Sarai's name, if you skip down to verse 15. We'll cover the rest of it on Wednesday night. Then God said to Avraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Sarah. This is both substantial and it is subtle. It's substantial in that God takes a pagan name, Sarai, which was tied to Sharate, the mythical wife of the moon god, Sin, the Akkadian pagan name, Sarai. He takes that and he makes it this beautiful Hebrew name, Sarah. Sarah. So it's a substantial change on that level, but when you look at it, it's very subtle. Sarai, Sarah. K Sarai, Sarah. <laughs> Which one is it? And what's the big deal? He just adds an H onto the end of it. Understand this, this subtle difference. Sarai means my princess. That's what I call Naomi. That's what I call her, my little princess. I say, hey, little princess. She says, hey, big king. It's always funny. She tries to counter exactly what I say. I say, you know, night sweetheart, and, and I'm just expecting her someday to say, good night, sour kidney. I, I don't know. <laughs> it means my princess. It's like daddy's little girl, Sarai. But Sarah means, get this, the princess. The princess. She's the one. She's the queen. And by the way, she is the only woman in Torah to have her name changed. Different men will have their name changed many times, but, but Sarai becoming Sarah because she will be the mother. She will be, as it says, a mother of nations in verse 16. Name change. By the way, you're gonna get a new name. Jesus promised to the overcomer Revelation 2.17, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. I love the promise. We talked about this before. What that means is all the stuff that's associated with my name right now, all the negative, bad stuff, gone. I'm gonna have a new name, fresh, clean. I can't wait. And I'm not gonna tell you what it is because I don't know. Verse 16, I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. This kind of elevation of a woman in this culture was unheard of. Ladies, please understand God's intention toward his daughters and his sons is exactly the same. We have the same inheritance from the same father, the same love, the same respect, the same desire, the same value he places on his daughters as he places on his sons. There is no distinction. And we see it all the way back at the beginning. Sarah. Avram's problem, Abram's problem was in not understanding, partially, the value of his own wife 
and her part in this whole covenant. And God is making it right as he clarifies it right here. No, I will bless her. She shall be nations. Kings of people will come from her. And three nations do come straight from Sarah's womb, Judah, Israel, and Edom. And many kings would then come in that lineage, both Jewish and non-Jewish. But for the first time, God makes it absolutely clear right here that the covenant must include Sarah, the princess. This is not just the Abrahamic covenant. You might add in your notes, it's the Abrahamic and Sarah covenant. It involves both. It must involve both. Now, this is an interesting thought, and you may think the same thing. Wouldn't it have saved a lot of trouble if God had told them like 13 years ago? See, that's what Dennis Prager points out. He says, if God had said this earlier, Sarai or Sarah would never have handed over Hagar to sleep with Abram and produce a child. They would have understood this. Why didn't God tell them ahead of time? Would have saved a whole lot of hassle. You ever think that way? Lord, why didn't you show me this 10 years ago? Why wasn't I made aware of this when I was a teenager? That would have changed the direction of my life. Why didn't you tell me? Well, understand that he already had. Oh, not that it had to include Sarah, but you know what? It was Abram and Sarai when he made the covenant promise. And Abram and Sarai knew very well God's prescription for the marriage bed. It was not to be Abram, Sarai, and whoever else we can bring into the process. And we are the same way. We often know what God's will is in a matter. We just don't want to do it. We just want to go our way and pull God into the mess that we've made, as you'll see from Abraham in just a moment. Listen, please understand this. El Shaddai will never use ungodly means to get to the end. He will never use unrighteous things even ultimately to produce righteousness. He can't. God cannot go against his own name and he is righteous. He cannot violate his character. He will not use sin to produce even a good thing. Now, we will. We'll lie if we think that's gonna get us somewhere. Watch Washington. We'll cheat if we think, yeah, but I know that I shouldn't be doing this, but look at how it'll bless if I can just, you know, just trust me to go through this my way. And God's saying, see, my way is both righteous and true. I will get you there, but we're gonna do it the right way. Abram and Sarah needed to understand that. I think God gave them 13 years to come to that point, to realize that them grabbing hold and conscripting God's covenant and making it different was nothing but problems and headaches. And so now God shows up. Now God re-clarifies, no, 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 you missed it. I told you my covenant, I gave it to you and to Sarai, and you missed it. But that doesn't change that this is my covenant. She will be a mother of nations, kings of people will come from her. Verse 17, then Abram fell on his face and laughed. <laughs> I can't even imagine. This is the same guy who moments before fell on his face in worship, and now he's busting a gut. Are you kidding me? Have you seen Sarah? 
Look at my wife. He's 99. She's 90 years old. She's going to be a mother of nations. What? Oh, come on. Note this. Avraham's initial response is laughter. It's just laughter. He's down on his face, uproariously. Now, I don't think it's irreverent. I just think he can't even handle it. I think he's overwhelmed. And again, nuance here. It's a mixture of things that's causing Abram, Abraham now to laugh. What do you mean? 16 years ago, we studied the same thing in this fellowship. We were looking at Genesis 17. I was convinced back then of what kind of laughter this was. And I taught it that way, that it was a laughter of gladness. I'm going to have a son through Sarah. This is going to be the best. Joyful excited the way I felt after my son Hayden when I discovered Cheryl was pregnant with Hayden. Do you remember that, hon? I called her. I, I was stopping. I was before cell phones, so I'm dating myself a bit here. But before cell phones, I was taking a group of college students out whitewater rafting, and we stopped off, and it was the last gas station before we were heading into the wilderness, and there was no contact for three days. This is how we used to do youth ministry. And so I called her up. Hey, honey, this is the last time we're going to be able to talk. I'll call you when we get back to this phone two or three days from now. How's it going? And she's pretty upset. She's crying. I'm like, what? what? What's wrong? I'm pregnant. I'm like, woohoo! <laughs> I'm like, yes! I was so excited. I had no idea, but I was so excited. I remember going down the river on that raft, just, you know, praising God for his, for his blessing. This is a good thing. So Abram, Abraham hears, oh, this is great. Sarah is going to have a child. Yes, I think that might be part of it. But it's not that easy because at the same time, I think he is laughing the laughter of incredulity, that kind of skeptical. You know the family. I mean, you can't so easily just divide out human emotion. There's so much things, so many things that can run through our minds all at the same time. You can be both joyful and skeptical. This is great. It's not possible, but it's great if it's possible. But I love, I don't know if this will happen, but oh, if it does. And that's where he's at. Yes, I think he's joyful. I think there's faith. I'll prove it to you. But I also think there's a strong degree of incredulity when he says in his heart, verse 17, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? He's 99. He knows the math. It's going to be another year at least, nine months. As far as I know, Sarah's not pregnant right now. My 90-year-old wife. And will Sarah, who's 90, bear a child? I mean, it's, by all human standards, this is redonk. This, this is impossible. Come on, God. I mean, you know, 13 years ago when we were kind of getting to the end of the whole childbearing thing, maybe, but, but now you've waited another 13 years? You wait till I'm cresting 100 and now you're going to tell me that we're going to do this? Come on. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. All things. Do you know what all things translates in the Greek? Thank you, all things. It's all things. There's nothing that is impossible with God. 1 Corinthians 1.20, Paul said, where's the wise man? And where's the scribe? 
Where's the debater of this age? Has God made foolish or has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Man, that makes me laugh. When I see how people are trying to figure things out and how people say, oh, this is the answer. I was listening to uh, an interview with Sheryl Crow. I actually really like Sheryl Crow's music. I like the style. I like the acoustic sound to it and everything. And so she was being interviewed and just talking about different things. She's been really big on the whole global warming thing to the point that she was called for a while there back in the late 90s, early 2000s. She was called One Sheet Cheryl because Sheryl Crow was saying, hey, when you use the restroom, just use one sheet of toilet paper. I don't even know how... Who can do that? I'm sorry, but that's just, are you serious? And she says, when it's really serious, maybe two or three sheets. I'm like, what? That made me laugh. (laughs) Laughter right there. Sorry, that was totally, I don't know where that came from. But (laughs) the laughter of incredulity, the wisdom of this world is complete foolishness before God. When God says he's gonna do something, it seems sometimes ridiculous to us, but God can do anything he wants. God who spoke this world into existence, God who is El Shaddai Almighty, he can do it. It's always possible with him. And by the way, by the way, get this. When God offers you what seems ridiculous to the natural self, that's where it starts to get fun. That's where the joy is in following Jesus. When you start to believe him, you start to take him at his word, things open up that you can't even imagine. That's when incredulity is blown away by reality in Jesus. By joy and laughter, that's when life becomes fun. And so it says that he fell on his face and laughed, and the word laughed there in the Hebrew is yishtak. Isaac, laughter. Abram, Abraham laughed. But understand, there's a difference between the skeptical laughter of the unbeliever and the inspired joy of the believer. Abraham's got a bit of both. He's not without faith here. I told you I'd prove it to you. Look at this in verse 17, the last thing he says, and will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear? This is the first time Abraham calls her Sarah. He has accepted God's word. God said, Sarai shall be Sarah, the princess. And so Abraham is now calling her, it's impossible, but if God says so, that's faith. That's faith. Not possible, but God said he'd do it. So, okay, okay, possible. He now calls her Sarah. I love that. He's accepting that the princess is the one through whom this covenant is going to be fulfilled. Now, again, it's all split second. This is all going on in Abram's mind, Abraham's head, quickly as he realizes these things by faith. And all of a sudden, in the same moment as he's rolling on the ground in laughter, his heart breaks. And his second response is lamentation. He goes immediately from laughter to lamentation. Look at verse 18, and Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that he would be the one. This is a father's heart. 
Remember, it's been 13 years old. Ishmael is a 13-year-old boy. Abraham has raised him. He's loved him. He's cared for him. Those of you who have 11, 12, 13-year-old kids, you know how it feels. I can't imagine if someone came along and said, by the way, we're replacing David with someone else. I'm like, what? No. Oh, that David could live before you. Oh, that Ishmael, he's my son. I love him. And you know what? Ishmael would not be the one to bear the title of only beloved son. That's gonna fall to Isaac. Over in Genesis chapter 22, verse two, God says to Abraham, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. Ishmael has now been set to the side. Why? Because Ishmael was not the plan. Ishmael was man's plan. Isaac was God's plan. Ishmael is the flesh. In the Bible, he's always a picture of the flesh, son of the flesh, the wild donkey of the man, the one who is set against his brothers. Ishmael, the son of flesh. Isaac is the son of the promise. If you want to study that more, check out Galatians chapter 4. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 4 about Isaac and Ishmael. We're going to get there when we get to Genesis 21 because that's really the context for Paul's teaching, but the two sons, son of the flesh, son of the promise. And Abraham says, as his heart breaks, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And you know what the problem is? It's not that Abraham is putting Ishmael before Isaac. It's that Abraham is putting Ishmael before God. You ever do that? Think for a moment, what are my Ishmael's? Who do I put before God? What are my plans that I would rather follow than his? What, what lifestyle do I find more important than what he calls me to? What am I doing right now that is not in accordance with his will? That's your Ishmael. It's of the flesh. He comes along with the promise, but the Ishmael's they can sidetrack, they can detour, even if for 13 years, they can detour the promise and confuse us and bring contention into our lives. Anytime we ask God to bless this mess, we're putting Ishmael first. Oh, then Ishmael might live before you. What Abraham is saying is, can't you just use what we've already got going? I mean, I know you, I'm getting, maybe the Hagar thing wasn't a good idea, but but now, it's been 13 years, and oh, that Ishmael, can't, bless my mess, work with my stuff, come alongside me where I am. And you can do that, and it's kind of human nature that we do that. Lord, can, can't you just come and, and work in this? And God's calling you to something better, something joyful, something that will bring true laughter into the heart. And the question is, are we gonna trust the flesh or are we gonna trust the promise? The flesh, the flesh will always leave you skeptical. Doing things by the flesh, trusting other people. Don't you, don't you have that? Even people you know well, they suggest you go a direction. Don't you find yourself going, okay, all right, we'll give that a try. But if it doesn't work, <laughs> that's trusting in the flesh. Trusting in the Spirit, trusting the Lord, trust the promise of God, and you will never be disappointed. 
Jesus said in John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. That's his desire. His joy in you, his joy in me, his holy laughter in me. And so while Abram's initial response is this laughter that's both skeptical but faithful, it's, it's joyful and yet it's confused, Immediately he falls into lamentation. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God's response is loving. This is a remarkable response by God. Look at verse 19. But God said no. You need to pause right there. How many of you are reading a new international version, NIV Bible? Show of hands. Okay. So what your Bible says is yes, Right? And God responds and says, yes, that's not right. And I'm not pointing that out to embarrass anybody, but I'll tell you what, after teaching the Bible over these years, I have found that there are an awful lot of things in different translations that completely miss the intent of the translation, what's really being said. The word in the Hebrew is a ball. I didn't even share this first service because I didn't find out until after the teaching. Because the NASB translation of the scriptures says, and God said, no. Someone came up to me and said, my Bible says God said yes. And I went, okay, we got a problem. We got an NIV, NASB debate going on here. Here's the deal. The word abal in the Hebrew is a negative. And if you want to note this in your Bibles, whether you have an NASB or an NIV or any other translation, if you want to note what literally he says, abal in the Hebrew is nevertheless. Nevertheless. It's a no. But it's, it's a different kind of no, and it's so fascinating to me because it fits better even than no. It's not yes. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, implying let him be the son of the covenant, and God says, <laughs> no, that's not the plan. Nevertheless, I know that's what you want. Boy, I know that feeling with my kids. But dad, I want to do this. Yeah, nevertheless, I'm going to start using that more. So prepare yourselves, kids. <laughs> Nevertheless, but that's what he's saying. This, this no, however, the, the, no, I'm not gonna do it that way. That's what's implied here. I know you want Ishmael to live. I'm not gonna do it that way. I don't like no's any more than you do. When we're asking for something and we get the no answer, none of us like that. It's so negative. When God says no, he says it out of love. When he says, nevertheless, I bring it to him. Oh, oh, that my Ishmael, oh, that my thing, oh, do this. And he says, nevertheless, I know that's what you want, but I'm gonna say no to that. That's love. Love does sometimes say no. It's even more loving, I think, with God to recognize, I get this is where you're going. I get this is what you want. Nevertheless, this is my plan. And so it is a no. By the way, if you want to hear a yes from God, walk in his presence and be blameless. And you will get nothing but yes. Constant yes. 2 Corinthians 1.19, as Jake read earlier, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. Yes, it's the yes answer. When I'm walking with Jesus, I get yes and my joy is full as his joy was full because he walked with the Father. It's yes through him. Because God wants to say yes to his people. 
No question that the Lord longed to, to say yes to Abraham, but instead he had to say no. Nevertheless, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son and you shall call his name Ishtok, laughter. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. I'm not gonna do it your way, Abraham. He loves to say yes. This is why, by the way, he named the boy laughter. God named this boy who would be born of Abraham and Sarah laughter, not just because Abraham laughed. I mean, yeah, Abraham laughed, we get that. He's blown away by this. He's not sure how to take it. Sarah is gonna laugh in chapter 18, the next chapter. She's gonna overhear the Lord saying she's gonna be pregnant and Sarah cracks up right before she becomes pregnant at the age of 90. And yet, I believe there's a twinkle in God's eye here as he names the boy Laughter, little laughing boy. Because he knew that the birth of this son, that doing things his way by his covenant promise was gonna bring more joy and laughter to Sarah and Abraham than they ever could have imagined. More joy than they ever would have known. Genesis 21, six, Sarah, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. She's just given birth and she's already laughing. And I know, ladies, that's what happens. You go from pain one moment to joy in the next. Jesus calls it out. John 16, 21, he says, whenever a woman's in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Tell me Jesus didn't have a sense of humor. He knows what goes on. And he says to the 11 in the room that night, John 16, he says, therefore you two have grief right now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. I really wonder if Sunday night, on Resurrection Sunday, I wonder if any of the apostles in the upper room laughed. A laughter of pure joy. You know the scene, Jesus appeared among them, and first they freak out, and he says, peace, peace be with you. And they're like, they're looking, and it's Jesus. And I just wonder, you know, was it, was it James or John standing in the back going, he's here, he's alive. The absolute pain and despair of the last three days over, he, it's what he said. I wonder if they laughed. Well, verse 19 Continues, God says, I will establish my covenant with Isaac for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And that blows replacement theology out the door. The church does not replace Israel. This is an everlasting covenant through Abraham to Isaac through the people that would come of that line. I promise you, I will do this, says the Lord. There's no alternative lineage. And yes, the church, we get grafted in as Paul masterfully describes in Romans 11. But we are not replacing those who are of this promise. Understand, the promise God makes here came 2,600 years before Muhammad comes along and says, well, let's, let's make it Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God says, nevertheless, it's Isaac. Isaac is the one. 
because God's plan only works by his almighty power. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I've heard you. This, by the way, is why I think he says, nevertheless, it's not an abject, complete no. It's no, we're gonna do it this way, but I have heard you. And behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He, that is Ishmael, shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. Why? Because God loves Avraham. Because this man prayed and God said, okay, all right, I'll do it. Be careful what you pray for. God may give it to you. He may answer your prayer. And this prayer lit a fuse that would detonate 4,000 years of conflict between Arabs and Jews that's still going on in the Middle East today. And that's no laughing matter. There's nothing funny about that. It's the outcome of a prayer. God says, all right. My covenant will be with Isaac. That will not change. But because I see how much you love Ishmael, I'll bless him too. Oh, Lord, the conflict, the, the pain that's gonna come of this. I know, I know. But maybe through walking this out on planet Earth, you will know too. You will understand there's my way, which is the highway. And then there's your way. It doesn't work out so well. Sometimes the love of God gives us exactly what we ask for so that we will learn from it. Verse 21 but my covenant I will establish, that is, I will transfer, I will deliver to Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Now hang on with me just a minute longer. We know that by the time God went up from Abraham, by the time God ascended from this revelation, we know Abraham believed. He fully believed. Abraham is now on board. How do we know that? Romans chapter four, I'll just read it to you. Romans chapter four, verse 18, where Paul writes, in hope against hope, he believed. So that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, as he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Abram's looking in the mirror and going, this is not possible, but, but God said so. He believed him. Says he also noted the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised he, El Shaddai, God Almighty, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. You know what he says? I love this. Abraham grew strong in faith. He grew in faith. That's the whole point of the exercise in Genesis 17. Why God comes back to him again, that he would grow in his faith. He laughed, he lamented, but God loved him. And in the end, Abraham believed. His faith grew. Why? I suggest to you that Abraham believed, that Abraham grew strong in faith, that Abraham accepted God's word because he was ready to. 
because he was prepared for it. What do you mean? I mean that he fell on his face, not in laughter, but previously in worship of El Shaddai. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him. He already had a heart of worship. He already knew El Shaddai. Oh, by different names, this would be a new name, God Almighty, but he knew the God with whom he was speaking. He already had a semblance of faith. He was already worshiping. And when push came to shove and real faith was necessary, Abraham grew in faith. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea and God will do it. The whole point is you don't have to have great faith. You just have to have some faith, a little bit. And you take that faith and in the presence of God, you hand it to him. And you let him work. And he may take 13 years. Or he may take 99 years. But he will, in your life, grow your faith. That's what he's doing with Abraham. This whole entire relationship of God and Abraham is a relationship of growing in faith. By the way, you know who else fell on their face? Moses did. During Korah's rebellion, you can read about in Numbers 16, he fell on his face. Joshua did. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 14, he comes face to face with the captain of the Lord's host, Jesus, and he falls on his face. David will fall on his face. But the last person in the Bible, the final one who we see falling face down is Jesus. Matthew 26, 39, he went a little beyond he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, what Abraham grew into, Jesus already knew. And that, that is this, that when God's will, when it seems impossible, even when it seems painful, Joy is always the result. Laughter will be the result of following the will of God. So fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the deal. You may be looking right now at a path of blood. You may be looking at a path of pain. You may be looking at a path of hardship. You know what's on the other side? If you will stay in the awareness of the presence of God, joy. Joy, laughter. And you know what? I really wonder what the laughter of Jesus sounds like. We're gonna hear it someday. Lord Jesus, we pray to you this morning that you will increase our faith. We've seen yet again another walk with Abraham. We've seen him growing. We've seen him uncertain, and we've seen him even skeptical. But we hear this laughter, this lamentation, and we see his reaction ultimately in receiving your word and your covenant. Father, I thank you for this. It reminds me that, that the walk of faith is a process. And that each and every one of us, no matter how little our faith right now, are, are and can progress 
in faith. We can grow in trust with you. Father, what an exciting way to live. A joyful way, truly, Father, to walk by faith and not by sight. I pray this for our fellowship. I ask it for myself. Lord, keep me aware of your presence and perfect me. Keep us all, Lord, aware of your presence as you sanctify us and we grow in faith, ever trusting you. And Father, we pray for the final outcome. We pray for the day of the shout of joy when Israel, when the maidens will dance in the streets of Jerusalem, when the people will shout hallelujah before you, when we will join in that holy, marvelous, good day of celebration. Help us to live to that day, to long for your appearing Jesus and to be formed and fashioned after the nature of our loving God. El Shaddai, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up together. I want to invite you <clears throat> right now, if you have never received Jesus Christ as Lord, to do it. It's called the gospel. Jesus died for you because he loves you so much before you even existed. He died for you knowing that you would need the covering of his blood, the cleansing. And he died on that cross and three days later he rose from the dead. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what we believe. And it's that moment, that tiny little kernel of faith. I believe that Jesus came. I believe that he died. I believe that he rose. That kernel of faith that God drops into your heart is what allows us to say, Jesus, be my Lord. And again, you do not have to be a person of great faith. You don't have to be learned. You don't have to have figured all this stuff out. In fact, I'm, I'm telling you right now, you won't. You can't figure it all out. I'm still learning it. But right now, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you believe that he took that step for you, if you'll receive him as Lord, instantly you will be saved. He has you, and he will grow your faith through the rest of your life. If you want Jesus as your Lord, I invite you to pray with me. Let's bow. And right where you stand this morning, if you'd like to receive the Lordship of Jesus, if you want to be in his presence for the rest of your life, simply pray with me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I am so used to going my own way. I'm used to doing things the way I choose. And this morning I'm asking you to come into my heart and change me. I'm asking for your forgiveness, for my pride, for my position for my ways. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ of God. I believe that you died on the cross and rose from the dead. And I believe that you love me in light of and in spite of myself. And so I ask, would you come and be my Lord? Would you please be my Savior? I give myself to you. In Jesus' name, amen.